Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the monthly podcast from U.S. Chess that goes in-depth with the writer of each month's cover story. I'm Daniel Lucas, the Director of Publications for U.S. Chess and the editor of Chess Life magazine. Joining us this month is FM Mike Klein of Chess.com, who wrote a preview of the 2018 U.S. Championship. Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the initial podcast that goes into depth about what is on the cover of that issue of Chess Life. For our inaugural edition, we have with us FM Mike Klein of Chess.com, who wrote the cover story for the April edition of Chess Life, which is a U.S. Championship preview. The U.S. Championship is going to begin on April 17th and run through April 30th at the Chess Club and Scholastic Center of St. Louis. And Mike went into depth about everybody's chances in both the open and the women's field. Mike is the director of content for Chess.com. He also does work for ChessKid.com. He's a longtime chess journalist with a journalism degree. He has been writing for Chess Life and now Chess Life Kids for many years, especially for high-level events like the Sinkfeld Cup and the U.S. Championship. So, welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thank you, Dan. That was an extensive CV. I should say, you told me this was going to be a tennis podcast, but we can talk about chess. <laughs> Instead of talking about the Queen's Campus decline, well, I guess we could just talk about Roger Federer then, huh? We can try. So, tell us more about your, your background as a journalist, as a chess journalist, as, and what you do specifically for both chess.com and chesskid.com. Okay, fantastic. Actually, um, I guess you could say that the work I do combines my two careers. Well, I thought I was going to be a practicing journalist for a mainstream publication. Um, but then I realized uh, when I graduated university around 2001 that it was going to be quite a slog working my way up from a small weekly newspaper somewhere in North Carolina where I grew up. Um, so I decided to move to New York City and become a chess teacher. Uh, and then several years after that, uh, your colleague at U.S. Chess, Jennifer Shahadi, uh, got me writing for uh, Chess Life. Uh, that's how we came to know each other, of course. Uh, it was during your fledgling tenure. Um, and uh, got back into writing as a result of that. Um, fast forward a couple more years, and chess.com saw that I uh, won Chess Journalist of the Year, and they were looking to expand their news division. So they came calling and uh, wanted me to be basically their lead news writer. Um, but shortly after that, I should say like maybe a month after uh, agreeing to bring me on, they bought Chess Vibes, which is a chess news site. Um, and so I was like, hey, hey, guys, what about me? Um, but it turns out they're bridging my work in the scholastic community because I've been teaching chess for so many years that I now sort of split my time. Half the time I'm writing news reports on chess.com and the other half of the time I'm recording content for Chess Kid. So they're really using both of my my talents. And of course, Dan, you're still uh, allowing me to write some some stories in print, which is kind of my true passion. You know, I, I like writing for web, but long form journalism is really uh, what I've always wanted to do. And, and Chess Life allows me to do that. So um, there are days where I'm recording a video on how the night moves. And then five minutes later, I'm interviewing Magnus Carlsen in person. And I have to try to remember uh, to live in that other world and, and not ask Magnus how the night moves. <laughs> and when you are recording those videos about how a night moves, your FM title, uh, which normally stands for Fide Master, 
It means something else when you're doing that. What does it stand for? Yeah, that's right. That came about as a result of a chess camp I was teaching in Atlanta, the Castle Chess Camp, which I can recommend to everybody. I taught there for 10 years, and I was almost always the lowest rated instructor, which tells you about the strength of the camp. Almost everybody was an IM or a GM. You know, every eight-year-old knows what that means, or at least every eight-year-old at the camp did. And, uh, you know, about the fifth time a kid said to me, hey, what's the F stands for? I got tired of saying, uh, well, FIDE, it's this French acronym, but we don't really call it by its French name anymore. We just say the World Chess Federation. And you can see I've already lost half of your audience here on your initial podcast by my explanation. So I just started telling kids, yeah, FMF stands for Fun Master. Um, and there you go. The name Fun Master was born. So Fun Master, and as Chess Kid knows me as Fun Master Mike, that nickname predated my work on Chess Kid. But it has worked out really well. And when I go to events in person now, kids run up to me and uh, yeah, they just call me Fun Master Mike. There's no Mr. Klein or Mike or any of that. Is it true that you also use that for your moonlighting job as a DJ? Um, yeah. Yeah. I spin tracks as Fun Master Mike. Uh, still waiting to get my first paycheck there, but uh, thanks for the idea. I like it. Yeah. Good. Um, you say that you know we're, we're allowing you to write for, for Chess Life, but it's because your articles are so popular with our readers that you're such a frequent writer for us. And usually when you're writing about the US Championship, it's after the fact. This time is the first one where you've written before the fact uh, as a preview. So tell us a little bit about what this article, uh, how it's structured, what readers will find when they open up their issue when it arrives in the mail. That's a great question. I really enjoy doing it because I don't usually get to write long form previews. So uh, each of the championships, that being the U.S. championship and the U.S. women's championship, are 12 player round robins. So in fact, all 24 players are discussed. Um, I can't go into detail about every single one, naturally. Um, you didn't offer me 50,000 words. You only offered me four or 5,000. But um, in any case, what I decided to do was, uh, you know, I'm in the I'm in the the chess world, which means you're always hearing about odds and betting, and a lot of chess players play poker and everything. And so, one of the bets I always love to hear about is, would you take Tiger Woods or would you take the field? Uh, and of course, back when Tiger Woods was good, that was actually kind of a tough question. Would you rather have just one player or the entire rest of the field? Well, I kind of use that same parallel in both the men's, I should say the Open Championship and the Women's Championship. Um, and in the Open Championship, I took the top three rated players, which are very clear, uh, Wesley So, Fabiano Caruana, Hinokar Nakamura, and I analyzed whether or not they would have better chances if you took those three or if you took the other nine players. And of course, we put a poll on uschess.org, and I'm not even sure I'm supposed to re release the results of the poll, but you might be able to guess what most people wanted in that scenario. And then I repeated it for the, for the ladies. The only thing is the ladies wasn't quite clear who the third best lady is. I took, um, of course... Irina Crush and Anna Zatonsky as a top two, not just because they're the most high rated, but because they've won so many championships amongst them that they clearly know how to win this tournament. Uh, but for number three, it wasn't clear. Do you take Sabina as the reigning champion, Nazi Pekidze, who's had a first place and I believe a second place in her two years? Um, another interesting thing I learned is that the third highest rated female, if you count FIDE rating, is Jennifer Yu one of the young rising stars. I was kind of shocked to hear that. So I did the same thing with the women, but only took the top two ladies. And I sort of analyzed, I broke players down into tiers a little bit, but uh, but the overriding question, as I said, is would you take the top two ladies or would you take the field? And it is okay to release those results because the when this airs, the magazine will have been released. So go ahead and uh, share what you found. Yeah, I don't have the exact numbers memorized, but uh, I will say that with the Open Championship, something around four out of five people, it was upwards of 80%, preferred 
the big three. Uh, and that's understandable. I kind of knew that when I asked the question, uh, but I did support what I was basically trying to show in the preview. With the ladies, two out of three, around 66% or so, preferred the field. Now, I gave them 10 players, not nine. But uh, that shows you that the, the ladies' championship is a little more wide open as far as who we think is going to win. And, you know, both of these championships are more exciting than five years ago. Because five years ago, it was basically Komsky winning every year. He won four out of five years early in this decade. Uh, and then it was either Anna or Irina. And whoever won their head-to-head -head game pretty much won the championship. I think something like eight or nine years in a row, it was one of them two winning. Um, so the tournament, I think, is much more interesting these days. And it's not because the top players did anything wrong. There's just more talent in the bottom levels. And speaking about five years ago, let's actually jump back 10 years ago when everything changed with the Chess Club and Scholastic Center of St. Louis taking over sponsorship of the U.S. championship. Talk a little bit about what the U.S. championship was like before that and what's different now? Well, one thing I can say is I never went to a U.S. championship before then because it wasn't a must-go-to event. It was just an event for the top players. And uh, I'm sure there were spectators that were locals, but there certainly weren't people flying in from all over the country just to go to it. Um, they, there was a lot of events held in, in Stillwater, Oklahoma, before, and then some were held in Seattle, some in San Diego. So um, I hear the organization was was pretty decent in some of those places, but the prizes were a lot smaller. Players were not fighting tooth and nail to get into the tournament. And as I said, it wasn't really must-see TV, so to speak. Um, in 2009... I was actually finishing an around-the-world trip. I was taking a sabbatical from, from work, and Macaulay Peterson, who used to run the live show in St. Louis, calls me up. I'm at an airport, I think, in South Korea on the way to Fiji, and Macaulay says something like, I want to get you on the live show for the St. Louis U.S. Championship. And first of all, that was all jargon to me at that point. I was like, live show? Why is St. Louis hosting the U.S. Championship? And uh, yeah, I just didn't know the, the impact that the club was going to have on the event. Um, and then fast forward a few months, that was back when the, the Open Championship and the women's were actually two separate events. So the women had their championship that fall. And I flew out. That was my first gig for the club. Before Chess.com hired me, I was actually working directly for the club, doing various journalism assignments, writing post-round recaps, sometimes appearing on camera kind of a media liaison role. Um, and then I've been going back ever since. Um, and the tournament has gotten, well, it's gotten richer. You know, uh, Rex Singfield has been slowly opening up his pocketbook more and more. But uh, but also it's just gotten stronger. And the format, I would say, Dan, has now sort of... Um, become a little bit more standard. The first couple of years, they were experimenting different formats. There was even one year where players were broken up into two pools, and you had to sort of uh, finish in the top two in your pool, and that advanced you on. Um, I think, in fact, the very first year, the men and the women were combined. It was like a giant tournament um, of 30-some-odd players. I think a player, even my rating, was able to get in the tournament. Uh, but those glory days are over. You've got to be 26 and change now to get into the Open Championship. So now it's pretty much a 12-player round robin. Very easy to understand, very easy to explain to people. Um, and, uh, and yeah, nobody skips the tournament anymore because... Uh, there's just too much money in the line. 50 big ones if you win the Open Championship. And not just uh, the money, but the conditions themselves are top-notch, world-class. Yeah, not just for the players. But when I used to work for the club, I got put up at the Chase Park Plaza. Uh, and, and the Chase, for those that don't know, is one of those historic hotels that fell on hard times in the 90s. And then, then they revitalized it. And now it's like the socialite capital of St. Louis. I mean, people go there on Friday nights 
just to party at the chase. So there's a movie theater inside, steakhouse. Um, so all the players still get those conditions. In fact, the um, the surrounding staff, the number of people that come in for the event is so large now, when you count commentary and journalists, that the club has purchased three different brownstones all within walking distance of the club. Uh, you know, you add to the fact that they pretty much own the Kingside Diner. They're pretty close to owning that whole block um, just because they need to put up so many people. Um, so now they put me up at the house. It's super nice. Um, and at, at the players' meetings, uh, Tony Rich, one of the directors of the club, uh, always tells the players, whatever you guys want, you'll get. Uh, you know, Pretty much every time a woman wins the U.S. Women's Championship, she wants to go buy a new dress. And there's always a Lincoln Town car waiting to zip her to the, air, to the uh, mall just to get her a dress before the closing ceremony. That's the kind of thing that the club does. In fact, I'll, I'll tell one story here, but I am sworn to secrecy about the player. So, Dan, you're not allowed to, to grill me here. But um, there was one year, I won't even say which event it was. I'll just say it was a St. Louis event um, that a player really wanted an omelet. And uh, the omelet store, shall we say, was closed. And the club specifically got a restaurant to open for an omelet to be made and delivered to this player. Um, now, for the 24 players playing at the championship coming up, if you hear this podcast, uh, I don't know that I pushed my luck and asked for an omelet, but uh, that's the kind of length that the St. Louis Chess Club goes to to make sure the players are happy. I'll even tease that Mike talks about another promise, uh, only said half <laughs> in jest that Tony Rich made to the players about this. But for this one, you'll have to you'll have to read the article, readers. Now, you said that no one skips the event anymore, but actually, that's not true, is it? There is one key player who decided not to accept his invitation for unknown reasons, right? That's right. I was taking a little bit of liberty with my sayings there. Um, in fact, the, this is the exception that proves the rule, I think. Uh, Gada Komsky, who's won the U.S. championship, I hope five times. I think I'm right on that. Um, it always stinks to get stats wrong on the air, but I'm pretty sure I'm right on that. Five U.S. championships. He won four this decade and then won I think back in the 90s, or like in the early 90s. But um, he did not give a reason to the club. It's a little bit mysterious. He's been a pretty active player on the world circuit. Uh, I believe he played in Iceland very recently. And uh, I would say he's become even more active of a player as he's become less elite, which is not so surprising. He's not as worried about his rating going to open tournaments. But he's still 2670 in change FIDE. So he, he qualified uh, with relative ease, you know, somewhere in the middle of the field, I would say. And uh, yeah, didn't give a reason. Um, he has a little bit of a, uh, he likes to keep his private life just that. And uh, so there's probably just something going on, but he'll be missed. Uh, he's just one of those mainstays in the tournament. Uh, he hasn't really been in contention late in the tournament the last couple of years, now that uh, those three world top 10 players make it a point to come every year. Um, but it's going to feel a little bit strange without him for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Speaking of top events, you know, as we're recording this, round 10 of the candidates tournament in Berlin has just ended. And one of our big three, Fabiano Carana, is currently in the lead. How, how do you see his result? Let's say he wins or comes in second. Do you think this affects his U.S. championship performance in any way? And is there even any chance that he may not play in the championship because he wants to focus completely on the world championship. Well, let me speak to your second question first. I think that Fabiano, along with pretty much all the players in the field, are, are too much of a professional to decline. They've already signed their contracts by this point, I would have to presume. Um, they would not even be put on the website as being a player if their contract wasn't signed. And uh, I can't recall any instance where Fabiano has ever signed a contract and then backed out of a tournament. Um, I believe he would probably actually have the club's blessing 
um, if he did it, because I, I, there's a certain someone whose initials are RS that would love to see another American world champion. And if Fabiano qualifies from the candidates, I'm sure Rex will do everything in his power to get Fabiano the training and support he needs for November's world championship match. Um, but we're still so far away from that, and you still need to remain reasonably active as a player. Um, I don't even think that Fabiano really has to worry about, you know, hiding things from Magnus if he were to qualify from the candidates, because we're just so far out from the actual event. Um, and he's getting good training by playing other world top 10 players. So, um, yeah, I, I can't imagine that would really happen. Um, now, if he doesn't qualify from the candidates, I think then absolutely there's no reason he wouldn't play. He's been kind of streaky lately. It's been interesting to watch. I think he had a really poor event in Tata this year, uh, finishing near the bottom. And now he's having another great candidates, and I'm sure he'll take that trade off. Um, Wesley, a little bit on the opposite end, of course, started with two losses in Berlin. Um, he's righted the ship a little bit, um, but it doesn't look like uh, with a couple rounds to go in uh, in Berlin, he really even has a mathematical chance. So um, I've always thought if either of them has a chance to win the world championship, Fabiano has um, a lot of mental toughness, and I think. You know, the bright lights of the world championship may not affect him as much as some of the other players that are even playing in Berlin. So I think that's really important, uh, something that's really hard to teach. And um, yeah, he he doesn't seem like a guy that gets tired a lot either as as long events happen. So with two weeks in between Berlin and the U.S. championship, should be plenty of time to recover. Let's say he does win the candidates and does not win the U.S. championship. Does that give him any kind of psychological hurdle to overcome as he goes against Carlson? Um, not really. In fact, I'm just just guessing here. I mean, as I said, he's a consummate pro, but if you win the candidates, you might treat the U.S. championship of that particular year as a free roll. You know, I mean, obviously, he's not going to mail it in and not prepare anything, but I think that it would not really affect him in any way. First of all, the gap between the U.S. championship and the world championship is just too long of a period of time. We're talking about April to um to november i'm sure he's playing in other events in between so it just doesn't seem like you can put one with the other you know the u.s championship while being very important i don't think that fabiana would be saying anything mean to st louis by saying that the candidates is more important so if he exerts a lot of energy to win the candidates at the cost of the u.s championship that's a trade-off that i think pretty much everybody can live with and what about hikaru nakamura before Karawana switched federations to the u.s there was no question that Nakamura was our dominant player, uh, even though Kamsky was out there. Nakamura has not won the U.S. championship since they came over. So what are his chances this year? Yeah, he may be thinking that he's got a little something to prove because he was the only one of the big three, of course, that did not qualify for the candidates. Uh, and that's what meant everything to him. I'm, I've interviewed Hikaru more than any other player in the world. I think that's probably probably pretty fair to say. And uh Many times when I was interviewing him the last couple of years, and even in the previous cycle, he would say, you know, whether he won a game or lost a game or won a tournament or didn't win a tournament, he would say, nothing really matters. I just care about the candidates. Uh, and this year, you know, he didn't get into the candidates. So what I should have said is nothing matters but the world championship cycle. Um, now that he's won a gold of the Olympiad, it is the one major thing left on his resume. He's won, I believe, four U.S. championships. Again, I don't want to get the stats wrong, but I think I'm right on that one. Um, so he may go into the U.S. championship with, like I said, a little bit more to prove. He's actually played so much chess in 2016 and 2017. I remember talking to him at the end of 2016 
um, where he started out with a great year. Uh, he won Gibraltar and Zurich, and he'd been winning those year after year. But he just had a brutally um, difficult schedule. And at the end of 2016, he said that his goal was to play less chess in 2017. But there was a problem. In 2017, he had to play all those FIDE Grand Prix tournaments, which are long events, to try to qualify for the candidates. Ultimately, he was unsuccessful. So I think this year, he's finally going to tone down his schedule a little bit. Uh, first of all, Zurich didn't even take place this year. Um, he did play Gibraltar, didn't quite win, but he did get to the playoff. But without um, the candidates tournament or the world championship, as far as the FIDE Grand Prix tournaments, um, or even the World Cup, didn't have to play the World Cup, um, he, you know, he he may look at the U.S. Championship as as his marquee event this year. And moving over to the women's championship, you've listed Crush Zatonsky as the uh, players to beat. But some readers may be surprised that the two most recent winners are are not considered part of a a big four. Why did you separate those out? Yeah, I think you've got to do well more than just once to to sort of enter that 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 uh, elite echelon. Um, now, there might be a strong argument for Nazi Pekidzi to be that third player um, because she's only lost, I believe, one game in two years at the U.S. Women's Championship. She has a first place and I believe a second. Again, I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm not too far. Maybe it's a first and a third. But here's the thing. She's played almost no chess since last year's U.S. Women's Championship. And I just had a hard time making her the clear number three without playing much chess. She did come back to St. Louis shortly after the 2017 U.S. Women's Championship to play in a round-robin event, and she did really poorly. Uh, She finished, I believe, last place. Uh, Didn't even chalk up a win, if I recall correctly. And that was about it. Now, she may have played some small tournaments at the Las Vegas Chess Club where they didn't make databases or um, didn't make online news reports. So I uh, hope I'm not selling you short. Nazi's a friend of mine, so I don't. I know she won't take it personally. But certainly, no really big events, no marquee wins, no um, no big rating gains or anything. I know she's got some business ventures going on, and uh, far be it for me to criticize players for not playing rated chess. I'm pretty much in the retired stage myself, <laughs> so that's that's not what I'm here to do at all. Yeah. But I'm just saying that it's not clear to me that that you can make her the uh, the clear number three. Um, as far as Sabina. I think she's been a little bit more active. We're very proud to say she's now a Tar Heel. She did move to North Carolina recently, along with her fiancé, uh, Grandmaster Elshan Moradiabadi. Uh, she's been focusing a lot on teaching, um, which is great if you're in the chess world. But uh, you know, sometimes, depending on the level you're teaching, it, it can actually have some negative impacts on your chess. Uh, but she's been definitely more active. Um, I know she was over in Romania recently, having uh, the inaugural uh, tournament to... Um, um, to highlight her mother who passed away recently. It was a memorial tournament. Um, so she was involved in that. And, uh, yeah, I think Sabina, um, I don't know. I I think if she does really, really well this year, she might enter that, that field of, uh, of players that we should be thinking about every year. In addition to Irina and Anna. I'll add that both Sabina and Elshon were my best move subjects. My best move is the column that's on the last page of each issue of chess life. And they were, uh, subjects both within the past year. So definitely take a look at those if you have not seen those before. Now, one of the most fascinating things about your article to me is the youth contingent in both the open and the women's side. Why do you think we have such strong U.S. youth players uh, that are already qualifying for the championships? Um, well, 
success breeds success. So we've got so many strong players in the U.S. that are teaching, that are uh, opening up scholastic programs, that every year we seem to be finding younger and younger elite players in the U.S. One way to look at it is this. This is almost a lot like um, what chess.com and chesskid.com rely on, is that the pyramid of players playing chess at a young age in the U.S. is so much fatter at the bottom than it used to be. So even though chess, like all things, suffers from attrition, people leaving the game or, or what have you, if you start with a wider pyramid, you're going to get more elite players as you move up. And that's just it just takes a lot of um, sort of grassroots programs all over the country. Um, Charlotte, which is where I grew up, was one of the 10 biggest scholastic programs when I was growing up. Now I'm actually kind of happy that we're a national backwater. Okay, we're not really, but um, we're not we're not really on the scene like we used to be. And it's not because chess has gotten smaller in Charlotte. It's just that there's now programs all over the country in South Texas, in Phoenix, uh, the Seattle area. There's so much chess up there. And when I was growing up, it was pretty much just you know New York City and you know maybe some other places around the country. I'm not naming right now. Um, so when you start with the bigger base of the pyramid, this is just a natural thing to have happen. Um, now on the women's side, yes, it's true. We have a lot of stronger young players, but what we need is for those players to stick with chess. There's a lot more players on, uh, that are men. I'm not going to say in the men's championship cause we know that's wrong. The open championship. There's a lot more players that are male that choose to make chess a career once they graduate, um, from high school or from college. We have so many young ladies that are master strength in high school or even in middle school but they almost all pursue careers outside of chess. Now, there's a whole other discussion about whether it's financially possible for them to stay in chess. Um, but, you know, we should be fielding U.S. women's teams with all, you know, mid-2400s, 2500 players if you think about the number of teenage masters that we have. But they all seem to get stuck around 2300. And maybe stuck is the wrong word. Maybe that's just what they reach in high school and then they leave chess. There's many examples even in the St. Louis era of players I could name that fit this mold. Um, that's why Jennifer Yu, I think, is so exciting, because she's almost 2,400 feet already, um, and you know she's still in high school. So I hope that she sort of breaks the mold a little bit. But, uh, but yeah, we've got to find a way to make financial conditions better for ladies so they can, they can stay with, the, with, uh, with chess even when they get to the adult ages. And I'd like to go back to one thing you said, because uh, a lot of our readers are often very new to chess and may not be familiar with the terminology. Why is it that we're so careful to not say the men's championship and we say the U.S. championship and the women's championship? Well, Dan, the reason I'm careful is because if I don't, I'm going to get a lot of emails and tweets. Okay. <laughs> um, no. Um, the real reason is because women are allowed to qualify for the Open Championship. Although we have not had a woman play in the Open Championship in many years, probably since around 2009, that very first event in St. Louis, um, if they get the rating high enough or if they win the U.S. Open or if they get the wild card, if they do any of the other ways of qualifying, they are allowed to play. Uh, now, years ago in the pre-St. Louis era, it was not uncommon at all for a woman to play, and I'll tell you why. First of all, the U.S. Championship and the U.S. Women's were often held in two different places. And there used to be an automatic qualification for the um, U.S. Women's Champion to get into the U.S. Championship the following year. So 
I'm a little fuzzy on exactly what the automatic qualifiers have always been, but uh, it used to be the U.S. women's champion would get into the U.S. championship, the U.S. senior champion would get in, and the U.S. junior would get in. Nowadays, I know they've dropped the U.S. senior. Um, that's why we don't, you know, we don't get to see Larry Christensen or you know uh, Alexander Ivanov play in the U.S. championship anymore. Probably because they want to keep the tournament really, really elite uh, with you know twenty six seventies and things. Um, the U.S. women's champion, I suppose, is still invited. I'm not 100% sure on that. But the thing is, and this is the key thing, the expected value is so much higher playing in the U.S. Women's Championship because they're run concurrently. And if you're a 24, 50, or 2,500 woman, you have really good chances to win the top prize in the U.S. Women's Championship. And in order to win an equivalent prize in the U.S. championship, you'd have to finish like second, which is, you know, punching well above your weight. So um, plus there's the whole fact that you want to win a championship. So there hasn't been a woman that's accepted an invitation to the U.S. championship since the events have been run concurrently. And I honestly can't blame them. You know, uh, the chance at 25 grand, which I think is the U.S. women's top title, is, uh, is you know, too much to pass up. And twenty five grand is the third place amount in the open or not the open championship, but the closed championship. Right. So in the US women's, you know, if you have a tournament performance rating of twenty five fifty or so or twenty six hundred, you've probably just won the tournament. If you have a performance rating of twenty six hundred in the US championship, you may have finished above fifty percent. <laughs> um actually you probably didn't because the lowest rated player is still above twenty six hundred. You probably finished in the bottom half. Um and that's just, you know, that's not the ladies' fault. It's just the U.S. championship is just so strong these days. It's just really hard to expect that uh, that, a, that a woman would have that expectation going in. Now, who knows? Maybe the U.S. women's champion this year will decide they want a real challenge, and that'll change. But, uh, you know, this is a pretty important payday. It's probably the biggest payday that most of these women have a chance at throughout the year. So they want to go after those 25 big ones. Of these two very large fields, is there one player that you feel has the most compelling personal storyline coming into the event? Most compelling personal storyline? Yeah, well, I'm not going to pick a major player for that, because if I do, I think most of their storylines are pretty well known. Yeah, I'll give you one. You know, I loved the story of Alex Onishuk last year. He was uh, one of the oldest players in the field. Probably he's younger than Komsky. Again, I don't have all these stats looked up, but uh, certainly he was not one of the spring chickens. And he made it all the way to a playoff against Wesley So, And in fact, in the playoff, he lost the first game, but had some really interesting chances uh, in the second game, but low on time, couldn't find a way to navigate it. And Wesley found a perpetual, if my memory recalls. But, you know, he actually had a pretty big handicap last year. He is the head coach of the Texas Tech chess team, and they made the final four of college chess last year. There was only two or three days between the final four of college chess, which takes place in New York City, and the U.S. championship in St. Louis. So he had almost no time to prepare himself because, you know, He's a good coach. His job was to prepare his team to play in that intercollegiate Final Four championship. This year, Texas Tech qualified again, but he's got about 17 days, much more time to prepare himself. And I have to think his team is, you know, his players are going to rally around him and be his seconds and his helpers and trainers for the U.S. championship. So I love stories like that. And I, I'd like to see Alex have at least one more chance to 
to win another U.S. championship. I think he's only won one. That was in the pre-St. Louis days. Um, and he's just an all-around nice guy. It, it's one of those guys where when he made it to the finals, he just had a lot of support. Um, in fact, his wife flew out when he when it looked like he was going to make the finals. And uh, it, was, it was just great to see. Well, she was nervous, but also how, how supportive and happy she was for him last year. And there are some other people that have come very close in recent years, uh, like uh, Kobe and uh, Robson, Lenderman. Do you think that there's one player who just really is hungry, that wants to win their first championship to a degree that it might tip the balance in their favor? Well, I absolutely know. A Kobean, of all the players who've not won one, he really wants it. Um, I hear him talk about it a lot. Um, in fact, during the event, he often doesn't let me interview him. I think it's a little bit of a jinx factor. <laughs> um, it has, in fact, the the better he's doing, the less likely he's going to give me a soundbite. <laughs> um, and we're you know we're friends, so it's not like uh, he minds me saying that. He just he's that focused, he's that locked in during a tournament. Um, I'm still waiting to see when Ray Robson really makes a run. At one of these championships, he's almost a little bit of a part-time player these days too. Um, he started playing his first U.S. championship at the age of twelve. I think he was the has, is the record holder for youngest. So he's a college senior this year, and I think that puts him in like I don't know twelve U.S. championships or something ridiculous at this point. Um, it's not clear where his career is going to take him after college if he's going to choose chess or not. His rating is stagnated a little bit, but he's finished as high as second in a U.S. championship. And I would love to see Ray string together a couple of wins and really, truly be in contention near the end. Um, I wouldn't say I see the same hunger, but, you know, I'll be honest with you, Dan, when we were in university, <laughs> we were we were having fun doing other things, too. So, uh, um, you know, Ray's much more likely to play tennis with me in the morning before a U.S. championship game. Um, but that may just be how he likes to relax and have fun at a tournament. Um, when the game starts, I don't know of any greater fighter than Ray at the board. Um, but I see a lot of hunger with Verusian. It's just, it's just so hard beating three 2700s or, or I should say beating them in the standings. So it, it's going to be tough for any of them to surpass, you know, Wesley, Fabiano, and Hikaru. Well, with that readers and listeners, if, if your appetite is not whetted for this upcoming championship, I don't know what will do it. And certainly I'd love for you to read more in the April issue of Chess Life to see the, all the details from Mike about the championship and each player's chances as he sees them. To access those, if you are a premium member, it will be arriving in your mailbox beginning of April. It's available to all of our regular members, as well as the premium members online at uschess.org. Scroll down and click on the Chess Life cover. And if you are not a member of the U.S. Chess Federation who's listening to this podcast and you want to have access to Chess Life magazine, just go to uschess.org and click on the Join button at the very top, and that'll give you all your membership options. So, Mike, thank you very much for participating. This was a lot of fun. Uh, I enjoyed talking to you. I hope it was a good experience for you, too. It was. I'll just close by saying that I just became a Life member of the U.S. Chess Federation two days ago after being a member for more than 30 years. And uh, Dan, I feel uh, very confident this is going to be the most listened to and highest rated podcast episode you've ever had. Uh, that's that's probably true. And uh, people who do want to become a life member, that's also at that, that join button. You can find the details about that. But we cannot promise you that you will be interviewed for a podcast just because you became a life member. Yes. Thanks for making that clear. <laughs> yes. So again, thank you very much, Mike, and have fun at the championship. Thanks, Dan. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 
now it's time for our monthly segment, uh, what's going to be a monthly segment, checking in with Jen. This is when we talk to our senior digital editor, Jennifer Shahadi, about everything happening in our U.S. chess digital world. So welcome to our initial podcast, Jen. Hey, Dan, it's so great to be here and talk to the membership about all the exciting things happening in U.S. chess uh, publications. Exactly. And we're going to be talking about uh, what's happening on the website right now, things that people might have missed, and we'll get into our social media and what's upcoming for the month of April. So why don't you get started, uh, Jennifer, let people know what you think is particularly interesting on our website right now. Well, the last couple months in the upcoming month might be one of the most exciting periods I've ever seen for chess in the United States. You know, we've got Fabiano Caruana and Wesley So in the candidates. Grandmaster Ian Rogers did some amazing coverage of that tournament, which you might want to look up. And obviously that's huge news being that we have uh, some United States players in the candidates. We also have the Pro Chess League, and um, I'm actually personally going to be in San Francisco and I'll be uh, doing some social media coverage of that. The Pro Chess League, I think, is very exciting to me in particular because, you know, my brother founded it. But on top of that, it's it's really showing chess in the esports way that I think is, is really great for the digital world. And then to top it all off, we're also getting started in April with our Spring Scholastics and one of the most storied events of the year every year, the U.S. Championship and the U.S. Women's Championship. So really, if you had to take two months in, like, the last nine years of doing U.S. chess website and now social media in the past five years, I literally think this might be the most too exciting of all that time. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And in fact, to underscore just how interesting everything is, you even left out something that's happening that I think is uh, a great deal of interest I, I, that I assume you'll also be covering on our website, which is going to be your presentation at the Dolly Museum. Can you talk about that? Oh, that's really exciting personally. That's right. The U.S. Chess Federation is partnering with the Dolly Museum in St. Petersburg, Florida, and we're just having a chess day, which is going to be this really fun event, kind of showing the connection between art and chess. I'm giving a lecture on Marcel Duchamp and um, his contributions to chess and art. Um, and, you know, the intersections between them. He was a hugely influential artist of the 20th century. Some people say the most influential. And he was also a chess master. So I've done a lot of study of Marcel Duchamp in the past. I even co-authored a book about his, his chess career and his chess games. Um, and so that's really exciting. And in addition, we're going to be doing simuls that day. And just announced there's also going to be a hula chess installation as well, which is definitely a throwback to a chess life cover from about seven years ago. So uh, very exciting. And uh, Carol Meyer, the new or executive director, is going to be in attendance as well. So uh, I'm really excited about that as well. And you're going to be able to find out about that a lot on social media, um, Twitter at US Chess and on our Instagram, US underscore chess. We have really vibrant activity in both of those platforms. And when we're covering the US Championship, because that is our cover story for the April issue, it's our preview of the US Championship. What do we have in store on uschess.org for championship coverage? Well, we've got to have some more takeovers. Last year, we had some takeovers on the scene from Eric Rosen, um, who's just a phenomenal photographer and really talented guy all around. It just seems that anything he does, he does well. Um, recently, he actually wrote a piece on U.S. chess about his worldwide travels and um, how you know chess popped up in all of the travels intentionally or not. He even randomly met 
um, Timur Gureyev just doing a blindfold exhibition in a hotel in Thailand. So uh, that was a pretty amazing story. So he's going to be helping out with some of the U.S. chess coverage for that. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about um, myself. I'm going to be doing the commentary along with Maurice Ashley and Yasser Sarawan on scene in St. Louis. So you're just going to want to keep your eyes peeled to all of our social media networks for, for the best from that event. And you're broadcasting with Yasser and Maurice. That will be at uschesschamps.com, correct? Exactly. That's right. And what is the Twitter handle for US Chess? It is just US Chess. So we got that We got that lovely Twitter handle. No complications. Just uh, twitter.com at US Chess. And I, I want to give a plug to your brother. You talked about the Pro Chess League going back. Uh, for the people that don't know, uh, who is your brother? My brother is Greg Shahadi. So it, it, the Pro Chess League was formerly the U.S. Chess League. Then Greg partnered with Chess.com and it became the Pro Chess League, which really raised its profile because now um, not only did, they ha- did he have the support of Chess.com, but also you saw players like Magnus Carlsen, our world champion, Fabiano Caruana, um, joining different teams. And actually one of the qualifying teams, the St. Louis Archbishops, is led by Fabiano Caruana, Magnus's team, unfortunately, got knocked out. But it's it's just incredible how many of the top players are involved in that league, including uh, Vishiana. And, you know, Greg is also a frequent contributor to U.S. Chess. Um, a lot of times he does um, Twitter takeovers, and then sometimes he writes articles as well. So it's, uh, it's just really great to have him so involved in the chess world right now. And about the Pro Chess League finals, you had mentioned Eric Rosen. He's, I'll also uh, mention to our readers and listeners that... Eric will be doing a photo essay of the finals uh, for a future issue of Chess Life. So that'll be a lot of fun. And uh, we'll, we'll give a lot of kind of a visual element to the reporting that we have on social media and uschess.org. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I'm out there actually is for another tie-in with Chess Life is um, there's a great show going on at the Oakland Museum of Art called Respect. And I'm going to be doing a, um, a talk there with Rochelle Ballantyne and Adisa Banjoka. Um, Adisa is the founder of the Hip Hop Chess Federation. And Rochelle is one of the stars of the documentary Brooklyn Castle. And, you know, actually, she was recently featured on U.S. Chess in a fantastic interview by Melinda Matthews. Um, you guys should really check out that. That was from late February. You can check that out on our archives. And Rochelle talks about her chess career, her life after chess, and some of her struggles being a black female in chess and getting a lot of attention and how that was great on one hand, but also that sometimes she struggled with that. It's just another example of the just the wealth of chess stories that we have in the United States right now. We, we really do have an embarrassment of riches. As you said at the very beginning, it's a very exciting time. It is. Yeah, just uh, just such a great time to be a chess fan, a chess lover. And I'm just looking to adding more fans and, you know, lifelong fans to the mix. And really with every, the personalities that we have and the events that we have going on now, this is a time to push. And I'm just really excited about everything that's to come for not only our organization, U.S. Chess, but chess in America in general. And Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I know you've just had a long broadcasting day, broadcasting the candidates. Uh, and so I'm sure the last thing you wanted to do is get right back on another microphone. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Oh, no, it's always a pleasure. Looking forward to being back next month. And we will talk to you next month. Thank you. Bye-bye. Now it's time for our monthly cover trivia contest sponsored by uscfsales.com. The winner will get a $50 gift certificate to uscfsales.com. 
All purchases benefit the U.S. Chess Federation, which is a 501c3 nonprofit. See the ads for USCFSales.com in the April issue on the inside front cover, the inside back cover, and on page 49. So this month's trivia question. Our cover uh, in the April issue is a gatefold cover, which means it's double-sided. It opens up into a two-page spread. When was the last time we printed a gatefold cover in Chess Life? Send the issues month and year to letters at uschess.org. The winner of the $50 gift certificate will be determined in a random drawing of all correct responses. Make sure to include your name and phone number. We will announce the winner and the answer on next month's podcast. So thank you for joining us on our initial episode of Cover Stories with Chess Life. This is intended as a monthly podcast that will be released at the beginning of the month as each new issue of Chess Life is released. If you are not a member of the Chess Federation and you are interested in getting Chess Life, go to uschess.org and click on the join button at the top. A premium membership will get you a print edition of Chess Life. A regular membership is online only access to the magazine. Remember, we are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you are currently a regular member and want to upgrade to premium membership so you can get this print edition and see what a gatefold cover looks like in living color, you can do so by calling our membership office at 1-800-903-8723 and choosing extension 4. So, I look forward to speaking to you next month. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about this podcast, please write us at letters at uschess.org. This is Daniel Lucas, the Director of Publications for U.S. Chess and the Editor of Chess Life. I will see you next month.